Hello, and welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm your host, Rob Pickles, here with Coach Connor. At some point in our lives, we've all been told that the burn we feel in our legs is lactic acid, and it was responsible for slowing us down. That was the common understanding when Dr. George Brooks proposed the lactate shuttle theory. His research led him to believe that lactate is not a dead-end product that just makes us sore. It is, in fact, a critical fuel we produce all the time that is needed by many of the tissues in our body. When he proposed this theory in the 1980s, Dr. Brooks was met with strong skepticism. But in the decades since, we've come to understand that lactate is a very complex and beneficial molecule. That's why today's episode is focused on Dr. Brooks and three seminal papers that he's written on the topic of lactate. The first, published in 1983, shows that excessive production of lactate is not the cause for its buildup. Trained and untrained athletes produce similar amounts of lactate at a given intensity. However, trained athletes are just far better at clearing it. In a second review from 2000, Dr. Brooks further explains the lactate shuttle concept that he introduced in 1984. It states that lactate is in fact a critical source of fuel that transports or shuttles from cells and tissues that produce it to cells and tissues that can use it. Our last study centers around research Dr. Brooks has been conducting with Dr. Inigo San Milan, a voice you've heard many times on the show. They're looking to understand the Warburg effect, the fact that cancer cells can produce 70 times as much lactate as normal cells. In the hundred years since it was proposed, we lacked an understanding of why this is. But Dr. Brooks and Dr. Sam Milan propose that the overproduction of lactate is essential for cancer's survival. Today we've got a big episode, so get ready to feel the burn and let's make you fast. Hey listeners, if you've been listening to Fast Talk for a while, you've probably heard a few of my hot weather racing stories. Like the time I tricked a rival team into feeding me some of their water bottles. Stories like those show how critical it is to beat the heat and stay hydrated. In our new pathway, we explore exercise in the heat. We show how to manage heat, dial in hydration, and fuel for performance in hot conditions. This new pathway taps Dr. Stephen Chung, the internationally recognized expert in thermal physiology, and sports scientists Rob Pickles, Lindsay Golich, Dr. Steven Seiler, plus Ryan Kohler and myself. This pathway busts myths and reveals science-based best practices for beating the heat. Topics include rider body types, mental strategies, sports drink salinity, drinking versus dousing, muscle cramping, which is one of my favorites, and you'll learn why taking electrolytes might not make a difference. Plus, we talk about getting acclimated, drink to thirst, and how heat affects sports nutrition. Take a look at our new exercise in the heat pathway at fasttalklabs.com. Well, Rob, we're here for another seminal episode, and this is a real big name. This is Dr. George Brooks. Anything you want to say about him before we dive into a few studies? Yeah, you know, I think the thing to point out with this is, Trevor, I, you, you didn't realize this, and I guess I didn't even realize it at the time, but the three studies that I chose for today kind of follow an arc in my life. The first study that we're going to talk about is from 1983, which is about when I was born. I was born just before that. And that's endurance training affects lactate clearance, not lactate production. So we got the beginning of my life. The second study we're talking about today came out in 2000, same year I graduated high school. And that's intra and extracellular lactate shuttles. 
And then the last study we're talking about today is from 2017, and that's called Re-Examining Cancer Metabolism Lactate Production for Carcinogenesis Could Be the Purpose and Explanation of the Warburg Effect. Not only is that a long title, but Dr. Brooks wrote that with Inigo San Milan, and I was working with Dr. San Milan when this paper came out. So if you think about it, today's episode mirrors my life. life. All I could think about was you don't want to know where I was in 1983 (laughs) and 2000, but a little bit different a place. I'm trying to think if I was, well, I didn't have high school in Canada, but... Wait, you didn't go to... Canada doesn't have high school? We do. Do you just shovel all winter? The school I went to, and you're going to laugh at the second part of this, it was the same school from grade three to grade 13. Grade 13? Yeah. You can't do it all at 12? (laughs) No, they do now. And you you start at three? I don't know, man, you Canadians. No, we started at one, but basically I was at the same school for a very, very long time. There you go. Well, Trevor, should we take this from... Well, I'm going to share one quick story because I think everybody in this field I'll drink my coffee. Please do. And it's a little coffee. It's my second one. Okay, there we go. I think everybody in exercise physiology has a Dr. Brooks story. And my story is the first exercise phys class I ever took. It was an undergrad 200 level course. We had a textbook for the course that I can't remember whose textbook it was. It wasn't great. Mm. And I remember the bookstore was having this sale on used books. Mm. And there was a copy of Dr. Brooks's exercise physiology textbooks, which for anybody who who is in the exercise science world will tell you that's kind of the definitive exercise physiology textbook. So the whole time I was taking that class, I would actually skim through the textbook we were supposed to read. And then I went to the Dr. Brooks textbook to get the, the real meat of the subject. And boy, was it a heavy textbook but it was fantastic. I can imagine. Yeah, Geyser and Brooks, they wrote a lot together. Another one while we're on textbooks, Textbook of Work Physiology by A. Strand. That's a really good one too. If people are just looking to weigh down their shelves with books, those are two, <laughs> two great ones to go out and get. And as we all know, you put the books on the bookshelf behind wherever you take your Zoom call and you never read them. <laughs> you just make sure everybody can read well, them. Well, you're, you're hanging credibility on the wall, right? I mean, you got to create an, an aura, an ambiance. There you go. Okay. I am proud to say my Dr. Brooks book, you can tell the spine of it is well run down. Well, it was used. So the first person. Yeah, I'm not going to say who is the one who did that to the book. I'm just going to say it's clearly a well-used textbook. There you go. Love it. So let's dive into this first one that is, geez, when you were born. Endurance training effects, lactate clearance, not lactate production. And I think before we dive into this, there is a bit of context. Basically, through this episode, we are going to be talking about lactate. This is the mark that Dr. Brooks has made, and it is a huge mark because before he started doing his research, there was a very common belief, accepted belief, about what lactate was and how it functioned. And I think a lot of us who are old enough remember our school gym teachers yelling this at us. And we're going to start there because this is basically what Dr. Brooks has disproved. But the belief at this time was that lactate was just a dead end product. It was something you didn't want. And so what they said back then was you didn't start producing lactate until you went anaerobic. Mm -hmm. 
And we just did an episode recently with Dr. Steven Seiler, who talked about the fact that this whole concept of being aerobic and being anaerobic is anaerobic. Yeah, it's an outdated concept. But back in the early 80s, that's the way they spoke. You were either aerobic or you were anaerobic. And when you were anaerobic, you were producing a ton of lactate. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, they probably talked more about lactic acid. And we did an episode on the fact that lactic acid actually doesn't exist in the human body. Just feel the burn, Trevor. Yep. But it was lactic acid that caused that burn, and that's what made you sore the next day. And it was just this dead-end product, and you needed to clear that lactic acid out. And what you're going to hear over the course of our discussing a few of these studies from Dr. Brooks is you couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah, and I think the second study that we talk about, the lactate shuttle, really drives that point home But what's worth pointing out is this first study from 1983, Trevor, that we're going to start with, it was a full 17 years prior to that. And so Mm -hmm. this is, lactate has been one of those molecules that has been studied for such a long time throughout exercise physiology, but it is ultimately malaligned. I'm pretty sure that's a word that's been thrown out there in terms of what its function, what its purpose, and ultimately what its value is within the human body, because there is value here. What we're actually going to get to, and we'll talk about this particularly in the second study, is that lactate is a critical fuel and one of the best ways to transport energy from cell to cell. So let's dive into this study, and I think we need to start with what was this study about, and what it's trying to figure out is there is a a lot of flux in lactate in our system when we're exercising, flux meaning movement, change, travels around, I'm trying to think of a really simple way of, of explaining that. But you see kind of a constant level in the blood when you're at a steady state. And so he's trying to figure out what's responsible for that steady state. Is it production of lactate? Does production go up and down? Or is it clearance? And at the time, it was very much believed it was production. So in an untrained athlete, they produce a lot more lactate because their system just isn't prepared to really handle this sort of intensity. In a very trained athlete, production actually goes way down. They're not producing a lot of lactate, so the lactate levels stay low. And remember, at this time, there was a belief that you really only started producing lactate when you went anaerobic. Yeah, Trevor. And if we think, you know, I'm I'm sure a lot of people, I can't because I'm not good at picturing things in your mind, but a lot of people can picture what a typical lactate curve looks like, right? That test uh, involves somebody running or riding, ultimately doing increasing workloads. And at those very early workloads, when the individual isn't working very hard, the lactate concentration in their blood is quite low, usually below two millimole, oftentimes closer to one, maybe even under one. But as that person works a little harder, a little harder, a little harder, that level typically stays low, low, low until it doesn't. And then, and the thinking at the time was, oh, they're going anaerobic. And you begin to see lactate increase exponentially. A little increase in workload nets a really big change in lactate. And suddenly that line is shooting out the top of the graph. I think another really important thing to point out about this study and the work that Dr. Brooks did is his genius in figuring out how to actually study this. 
Because think about it, you have somebody exercising. Actually, this study, they used rats. Yep. But let's say you're trying to figure out where's the lactate coming from? Where is it going? How is it being used? You have somebody running on a treadmill. How are you going to say, okay, I'm going to poke inside you, try to see what's going on in your cells, see what's going on in your blood, and get an answer for where this is going, what muscle, you know, what tissues are producing this, all that. It's actually extraordinarily difficult to do. And he really came up with this method of essentially stamping little IDs on the lactate molecule. So they use this carbon-14 identifier to really see where does that lactate ultimately end up? Where is it coming from? And what I found amazing in this study, and and this is where you kind of go, this is Dr. Brooks, nobody else could get away with this. The discussion was extraordinarily long for this study. And I'd say about a page of it was him musing about the different methods of doing this carbon identification. And sorry, I know these are none of the the right terms. I'm just trying to keep this simple. Using this way of identifying the lactate molecules and tracing it, where it's going, what's happening to it. He literally just muses about it and the different methods and which is better and what the, the pros and cons are. And I could tell you, if I wrote a paper and wrote a page like that, and submitted it, they would go, get rid of that. But this is Dr. Brooks. If he wants to muse a bit about the best methods, he's going to get that published. Yeah, Trevor, and I think that that's an area also where, you know, we've talked about Professor John Hawley and and his uh, biochemistry abilities. And that's the same thing with Dr. Brooks here, where there is a lot of thought that has gone into the procedures. And I think that that's a difference that we have research back in the day, back in the 1980s, when these techniques are being developed, research is oftentimes about figuring out the best technique on how to study something. In this day and age, we figured a lot of those techniques out. Current papers oftentimes are not discussing this because they're citing these original foundational seminal studies like the one that we're talking about today. But oftentimes the hardest work wasn't necessarily getting the data. It was creating the test to get the data. And what I'm amazed by, as you point out, this is a study from 1983. There's so much evolution since then. But in my notes... This is something that that I wrote. I'm just reading it right here. Page 85 has very specific CO2 measures and calculations. They're above my head. <laughs> I That's <know>. all I <laughs> wrote. <laughs> I, I, I skipped that section. There's no highlights on that page at all. <laughs> yep. No, I tried and just went, it would take me a day yep. to yep. even try to understand this. So right. It's it's pretty amazing stuff, particularly for the time. Yeah. So Trevor, something interesting to point out as well is that they also used a labeled glucose as well. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, this is what's helping uh, Dr. Brooks and, and his team determine is the lactate increase that you see in the blood, is that because the muscle cells are producing more or because uh, there's a clearance change that's happening? So let's dive into it. What did they discover in the study? And I'm going to point out, I'm I'm glad you picked this paper because this was a very important paper at the time. Yeah, certainly. Well, Trevor, to give the basics on the background here, um, they did, they used rats throughout this. Those rats were endurance trained. There was one control group, right? And one trained group. Train group was five days a week. They began at 10 minutes a day. 
and they went up to 120 minutes a day. And so I was like, man, the volume increase and in how quickly they yes. trained these rats is incredible. But I guess rat lives are a little bit shorter. And so you got to do everything a little bit faster. They also looked at these rats in three conditions, right? When they did the infusions, when they were doing the measurements with the control and then the trained group, the three conditions were rest, easy work, and hard work. And for those that don't know, you can relatively easy control the workload of a rat because you put it in a box on a treadmill and it basically has to go the speed. I don't necessarily agree with some of these methods. Animal testing is, is a tough topic, but this is a lot of the foundational work uh, that we've had in physiology and in other fields. Yeah, I was actually thinking about those poor rats when he did a VO2 max test because he said he, he took them to failure. Yeah. They're not making that choice. They're on a treadmill. So at some point, that rat is going flying off that treadmill. Well, I think that they're rolling along <laughs> the treadmill really like a, so, head yeah, over heels when they can't keep up. Yes. So yeah, Trevor, what do we, what do we normally see in, in exercise training, right? The VO2 max of the rats that were endurance trained went up 13%. Great. We know that they got aerobically fitter. And then between both groups, we also know, this is a common knowledge today, lactate goes up with metabolic rate. Rats run faster, work harder, lactate in the blood goes up. Doesn't matter if you're trained or untrained. So what was interesting about all this is they showed, so at the, when they were doing the high intensity work, a lot of the things that at the time they expected to be different really weren't different. Mm -hmm. You saw about the same oxygen consumption between the, the trained and the untrained rats. You saw about the same carbon dioxide production. So you weren't seeing a giant difference in their fuel source between carbohydrates and fats. Yep. And to me, there were two big take-homes from the study. And the first one, which was the main point of this study, was they found it was not production of lactate. They were producing about the same amount of lactate, whether they're trained or untrained. Yeah. Ever so slightly lower for trained, but really not enough to account for the differences right. that we see. But the big difference was in the clearance rates. Mm -hmm. The trained were just much better as they were producing that lactate to say, we got a place to send it, we got a place to use it. Yep. And so when you looked at the metabolic clearance rate between the two different groups at rest, both the trained and the untrained rats cleared about the same amount of lactate, not a big deal. With the easy exercise, the untrained rats actually decreased their clearance a little bit. Even though they're producing more lactate, their clearance is going down. Whereas in the trained rats at easy exercise, their clearance went up. So they produced more lactate. They were able to clear more lactate. And that's probably why we see in those beginning uh, stages of a lactate test that that value stays nice and low. Sometimes it even lowers a little bit because that clearance is ramping up yep. with metabolic activity. Now, when we go to the high-intensity exercise, the untrained rats, their clearance basically, it fell through the floor. It was essentially gone right. at that point. And there was another, you know, kind of a maintenance, I'll say, of metabolic clearance rate in the trained rats that was very similar between hard and easy exercise. So the big take home from this is training increases your clearance rate where not training, your clearance rate falls through the floor as exercise intensity increases. And one of the explanations they have for this that, that they do address in the study is blood flow. In untrained, most of the blood is going to the working muscles. The blood is transporting that, that lactate. 
it needs to take that lactate to tissues that can actually use it. And if all the blood's going to the working muscles, you're, you're kind of out of luck. The working muscles can use some of it, but not a lot of it. Where in the trained, they can still shunt that blood to other tissues that can take up the, the lactate and use it. So there was one other thing that I kind of went, wow, you know, this is a 1983 study and I've either forgotten this or I hadn't thought about this. And, and it was really quite interesting to me. But the question is, what when they're clearing the lactate, how is it being used? What's going on with that lactate? And there's basically two ways it can be used. One is oxidize. So basically a tissue takes it up and says, we're going to use it for fuel. Mm-hmm. And you see the majority of lactate is oxidized. But some of it will go to the liver, kidneys, and even a little bit in the muscles and used for something called gluconeogenesis, where lactate is basically converted back to glucose and then the glucose is sent back to the tissues that, that need it for fuel. What I found really fascinating about that is in the trained, you saw they were better able to use um, more of the lactate for gluconeogenesis. And that's important because we always talk about the fact that you have limited glucose supplies. And if you're out exercising, if you're training hard or you're in a race, and you deplete your glycogen, you deplete your glucose. Everybody's had that experience where you bonk, you hit the wall. That's because you're now relying completely on fat. You just don't have glucose left to, to kind of fuel you. And so what you're seeing here is lactate is being used to spare glucose or to at least keep glucose levels high. Yeah, I find this really interesting because it's the original recycling program, right? Mm-hmm. We all go and, and try to recycle our plastic and our aluminum and our glass. You know, they're breaking down those compounds and making new plastic, aluminum and glass out of it. Well, that's exactly the same thing that's happening in the body where we're breaking down glucose, we make lactate, and then we take some of that lactate and we try to turn it back into glucose. And it's this cycle that keeps on going fueling the body, which makes sense, right? Because we want to be able to have glucose in our body when we're at a high level of lactate production, right? It's kind of a feed forward, positive feedback loop that hopefully helps extend the amount of time that you can maintain that particular intensity for. And actually you just raised an important point. I want to make sure we give all the explanations for anybody who's very new to all this. So when you are using glucose for fuel, it's broken down in, some, in a process called glycolysis. So that's where glucose is converted into ATP, which is your immediate source of energy. The belief back in this time was that the end of glycolysis, there, there were one of two possible end products. One was pyruvate, and pyruvate could then be used to, to help burn fat and, and produce energy using oxygen. And, and I won't go into the terms there. The other one was lactate. And the belief was when you were in an anaerobic state, which again is outdated, glycolysis would go to lactate. The lactate couldn't be used. And so your body would go, I got to get rid of this. Do something with it. Pump it out into the blood, causes burning because they believed it was lactic acid. And then you, you shut down. Another thing they do point out in, I believe it was in this paper, was that actually that's not quite accurate. And you see that generally the end product of glycolysis, whether you're going easy, whether you're sitting on the couch, whether you are going really hard is actually lactate. And that 
I'm not 100% certain that was in the study. It was definitely in the next one that we're going to talk about. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's the funny part about looking back and being able to see the bulk of this work at one point in time. The paper that we're talking about right now is ultimately one of the formative papers that created the lactate shuttle hypothesis, which mm -hmm. is ultimately the movement of lactate within cells and also between cells. And so you can see the underlings of some of these ideas and their infancy show up in these early papers. But then, you know, 17 years later, they're significantly more flushed out and uh, much more solid on their evidence because they've been able to do some study in that intervening. 17 or so years. And to that point, so the paper that we just talked about was published in 1983. It was in 1984 that Dr. Brooks introduced the lactate shuttle concept. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. And so should we shift over there, Rob, or do we have anything left to talk about the other one? Well, actually, we, we kind of jumped ahead a little bit. Uh, one thing I wanted to point out back when we were talking about gluconeogenesis, the creation mm -hmm. of new glucose, the untrained rats had a decrease in their blood glucose throughout exercise, whereas the trained rats had relatively no change. So just going back to some data supporting yeah. the benefit of that gluconeogenesis, that's an actual empirical evidence that we can see there. Great point. Hey listeners, this is Ryan Kohler, coach, physiologist, and owner of Rocky Mountain Devo. Whether you're a competitive athlete or a fitness-focused individual, Rocky Mountain Devo has a place for you. We provide coaching, nutrition, lactate and metabolic testing, and training plan guidance so that you can get to where you want to be. Check us out today at RockyMountainDevo.com. You know, Trevor, something that I'm struggling with right now is... The first and the second studies that we're talking about today are ultimately so interlinked, right, that it's hard to just talk about this first study and not talk about the second, the lactate shuttle study. You know, so maybe what we should do is start, you know, so let's start bringing in that second study a little bit because, you know, the lactate shuttle ultimately is what's explaining some of these changes that we're seeing in this first lactate clearance study. They just didn't necessarily know it at the time. Yep. And important point, lactate shuttle concept was introduced in 1984. The review that we're about to talk about right now was actually written in 2000. So this is a little bit of Dr. Brooks looking back on the introduction and then what happened after that and how this was ultimately proved. But it's really important to understand when Dr. Brooks introduced the concept of the lactate shuttle, it was in complete contradictions of the belief about lactic acid at the time. Mm -hmm. And it was not well received. Yeah, it, it wasn't well received at all because, you know, that that's oftentimes how new concepts ultimately get introduced, right? But you are right, Trevor, the beginning of this paper began with uh, an overview of the history. And there was even a, a state of the art of 1990, you know, section, a state of the art of 1996 and he really outlined the, the changes in thinking as new research was coming out. How did that affect the knowledge kind of throughout those intervening years? And I feel like there was a lot of change from 1980s until 2000. But following, and the reason I picked this paper, I think following this 2000 paper, we saw a lot less change from 2000 to today, right? And so that was sort of the apex in terms of our understanding or learning about lactate. Great point. And I think, unfortunately, I said I was going to avoid it before, but I think in order to fully understand this lactate shuttle, 
we need to give a little bit of, of physiology here of how our metabolism works. And I'll try to keep this, I'll try to use as few terms as possible and keep this simple. But I always remember back to when I took that first exercise physiology class, my final exam had this question of, does the Krebs cycle occur inside the mitochondria or inside the cytosol? Mm. And I read that question and I went, you got to be kidding me. That is just the most in the weeds, unimportant question ever. And it just showed my lack of knowledge at the time because actually that is one of the most important things to understand about our metabolism. So let me see if I can explain this using as few terms as possible. But we just talked about glycolysis. That's where you break down sugars, glucose to produce energy. And really important to understand, glucose requires no oxygen. So when you go back billions of years to little bacteria on the earth, this was how they produced energy because they weren't oxygen consumers. They didn't need to breathe. And this is where the term anaerobic without oxygen came from. Right. So glycolysis is anaerobic. And glycolysis happens in what's called the cytosol of the cell, which is just basically the main part of the cell where you've got this fluid and everything floats around in it. It's like a swimming pool with pool noodles and some Uncle Bob is floating on the the raft over there. But you have, and, and anybody who's been involved in endurance sports has heard of mitochondria. These are these little organelles inside your cells. And this is where oxygen is used to produce energy. And they're called the powerhouse of the cell because they can produce a lot of energy. So glycolysis, when it breaks down a glucose molecule, only produces what is a 6 ATP? Dose. Two. Two. Well, to be nice. Well, yeah, it's depending because the glucose is cleaved, right? And right. so relatively few without going into more detail. So inside the mitochondria, there's what's called oxidative phosphorylation. So first you have the Krebs cycle and then oxidative phosphorylation. Don't worry too much about those terms. But basically, that's where your body or your cells pull in fat and break down fat for fuel. And a fat molecule, depending on which particular fat, you can produce 30 plus, 40 plus ATP. It produces a lot more ATP than a glucose molecule. It just runs slowly. So hence, when you're going really hard and you need energy fast, you use less efficient glycolysis, break down glucose. When you are going slower and you just need a lot of energy, that's where this, what's going on inside the mitochondria really ramps up. Now, what's important to understand here, they say in in physiology that fat is burned on a glucose fire because at the end of that glycolysis, after you break down glucose for fuel, there's that end product. And we were talking about the end product can be pyruvate or lactate. Pyruvate is the first step of everything that goes on inside the mitochondria. So you need that pyruvate. Without that pyruvate, you can't start burning fat for fuel. So you need glycolysis to be happening and then it needs to deliver that pyruvate to the mitochondria and then the mitochondria can do their stuff with it. But one of the things that I believe Dr. Brooks introduced was Well, you got to get that end product across the membrane wall of the mitochondria into the mitochondria. And actually, you can't transport pyruvate across that wall. 
it has to be transported across as lactate. So even if pyruvate is the end product of glycolysis, it has to be converted to lactate. That lactate then transports across the, into the mitochondria, then it's converted back to, to pyruvate. So hence, this is, and Dr. Brooks definitely mentions it in this paper, lactate is really the dominant end product of glycolysis. So even when you are going easy, even when you are on the couch, this is why this is important, even when you're on the couch, you are producing lactate. You are not just producing it when you're going hard. Correct. And yeah, that was really emphasized in the first study that we talked about today, where the rate of appearance and the rate of clearance, we're always producing. And through markers, we can see, yeah, we're always producing lactate by marking the glucose, but then also we're always turning that over and oxidizing it or creating glucose from it. The levels just look low because appearance and production are, are relatively equal at that point in time because we're at relatively yep. low states, so we're able to manage that. And so what Dr. Brooks gets at, and, and this is kind of one of the brilliance of physiology, the value of lactate is lactate transports really well. It moves across membranes really well, and we have a lot of membranes. Every cell has a membrane around it. But then within the cell, the mitochondria have a membrane around it. Your body has a whole ton of membranes. And to transport energy, that energy has to somehow get across those membranes. And this is this concept of the lactate shuttle is lactate transports really well across them. We have the, and he talks a lot in this study, and we're not going to go too deep into it, into what are called MCTs. What I, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but... Actually, Rob, you want to save me on that one? Nope. Thank you. Mm. Monocarboxylate. Did I get it? Lactate transporters. Yeah, and and this is where we're getting into that new concept, right? Yep. We knew that you produced lactate, and we knew that lactate made it into the blood, obviously, because lactate in the blood goes up as you work harder. But what we're now beginning to discuss is that lactate can actually cross membranes into other cells and into their mitochondria. And that's where a lot of this new thinking is coming out. The first half was, has been figured out for years and years and years yeah. prior. We knew it got to the blood, but what the heck did it do when it got to the blood? Well, the new thinking with lactate shuttle hypothesis is that that lactate is able to go into other cells and be utilized as energy because we can convert between lactate and pyruvate, as Trevor talked about before. So if we can get lactate into the blood, if we can get it into slow twitch or cardiac muscle, it tends to be really good at this. If we can get it into their mitochondria, then their mitochondria can actually use that lactate and produce a whole heck of a lot more ATP. And so we don't have to think about lactate and anaerobic glycolysis, the first set of steps of glycolysis, that that's only producing two ATP. It's actually producing a heck of a lot more. It's just producing the rest of them in other cells. Yep. And this is that brilliance of the physiology, because here's, here's the way to think about this. When we, we talked about glycolysis and then the mitochondria's ability to burn fat, not all cells have equal ability to do glycolysis nor equal volume of mitochondria to burn fat. And so this is the brilliance. You have, for example, your fast twitch muscle fibers, huge ability to perform glycolysis, 
but very little mitochondria. So they're doing all this glycolysis and they're ending up with this lactate accumulation going, I can't use this. I'm not really a, an oxygen using cell. So I got to dump this somewhere. Yep. So it turns it into lactate, pumps it out of the cell. You have other cells in your body that are the big oxygen using cells, like your, your type one muscle fibers, your, your heart tissue. And they don't have a lot of glycolysis, but they have a ton of mitochondria. They want to be burning fat and they're screaming out, I need that precursor. I need that thing that keeps driving my, my ability to burn fat, which is lactate and pyruvate. And so they're calling out for it. So you have these glycolytic tissues that are pumping the lactate out. And then you have these other tissues that are big oxygen users saying, great, thank you. I'm going to pump this in and I'm going to use it. Yeah, and all of this is occurring along a concentration gradient, right? Yep. If you look at the amount of lactate in this paper, they termed it white muscle, but ultimately fast twitch muscle fibers. If you didn't know that when you're eating white and dark meat and chicken, yes. fast and slow twitch, dominant muscle fibers. The white muscle fiber, the, the fast twitch has a lot of lactate in it. Blood has the second most lactate, one step down the concentration gradient. And then the red muscle, as they call it, or the, the dark meat, the slow twitch, that has the least lactate. So we're flowing, like most things do, from high concentration to low concentration. And this is something that's important to point out, is these transporters, the MCTs, move lactate and they also move a hydrogen ion. And that is where everybody associated lactate with this lactic acidosis, right. right? It's not as if the lactate and the hydrogen are bound together. It's more that the transporter, without getting into the details, the transporter has to use a hydrogen ion so that it changes shape and allows that lactate through. Yeah, and so for anybody who doesn't understand, know about this. When you're talking about acid, you are basically always talking about hydrogen ions. Any sort of acid just releases these hydrogen ions. Hydrogen ions are highly damaging. They break things down. And so that to me was the, the, the really funny contradiction is as you pointed out, cells, when they transport the lactate out, they also transport a, a hydrogen ion out. And so everybody was going, lactate, lactic acid is this dead product because whenever you see an increase in lactate, you, you see pH go down. So you're going... It's causing burning. That's this horrible acid in your body. Actually, what's going on is your cells are using lactate to get those hydrogen ions out of the cells so the cell can keep functioning. So lactate's actually fighting the acidosis, not causing it. Yeah, and interestingly, we see changes in these transporters. They'll increase with chronic exercise. Exercise day in and day out, endurance training, your ability to transfer these molecules goes up. But we don't necessarily see any changes with acute exercise. And sometimes there are changes that happen immediately today in response to that bout of activity. We don't necessarily see that with lactate transporters. It takes days and days, weeks and weeks, months and months of training. So I got to go back to your point about the, the white meat and the red meat. Mm. When I learned that, it really made me depressed. <laughs> Why? Because I love white meat. I hate red meat whenever we have turkey or chicken. And I realized if you ever cooked me being an endurance animal, I would not taste very good. So you don't love yourself. I would not want to eat. Oh, God. <laughs> That's really funny, Trevor. <laughs> 
or horrifying that I actually think about these things. Well, <laughs> hey, just think that the, the acid that we're talking about here makes things nice and tangy in flavor. So yes. yeah, there you go. So I've said this before. I just want to restate this. Lactic acid does not exist in the human body. It is lactate, which is alkaline, not acidic. And if you hear a coach talking about you got to clear the lactic acid and the next day when you are sore, they're saying that's because you got lactic acid in your tissues. They need to go and read their physiology because that is an outdated concept. It is not true. Is this your soapbox? It is one of my biggest soapbox. That and the wear knee warmers. <laughs> Skateboarding is not a crime. That's yours. <laughs> <laughs> Rob has perpetually had a skateboard in his office. I don't know if you've actually used it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I sneak out over lunch when nobody's looking. And go skateboard? Yeah. Okay. Do you wear your hat backwards? No. I wear it slightly cocked to the right. <laughs> so I think as we close up this study, you know, I just want to emphasize the importance of this lactate shuttle concept that took us from this idea that lactic acid was this dead product that you don't want to an understanding that lactate is actually this amazing molecule for transporting energy from tissues that can't use it to tissues that can use it. And it's this great way of conserving that energy. And as you pointed out, even in the, the liver and the kidneys, converting it back into glucose so that we can avoid running out of our glucose supply longer. So we can even dive into other roles for lactate, but this ability to conserve and maintain energy to make sure it's going to where it needs to go in the body is extraordinary. And lactate is actually, when you're talking about energetics, one of the most important molecules in our body. Yeah, no, certainly. I, I think another thing to point out too is that when we discuss glycogen, our ability to store glucose, the liver is the only organ that really stores significant uh, glycogen and glucose and can also send it throughout the body. The glycogen and glucose that's stored within your muscle is locked in your muscle. So that glucose in your leg doesn't do anything for your triceps when you're rowing a canoe, climbing a rope, doing push-ups or, or whatever else. But through this lactate shuttle, it's ultimately a way that we're able to feed the rest of our body because this lactate production is occurring in something like our legs and being sent elsewhere. So it ultimately is evening the energy distribution a little bit. And this is where we have to give a huge amount of credit to, to Dr. Brooks and why we're doing this episode about him because he was the one that shifted this understanding. And without this shift, we really couldn't understand how we produce energy, how energy is used in our body. This was very, very important research that has really shaped a lot of modern exercise physiology. So Trevor, I think that you're right in that Dr. Brooks has been hugely influential in our understanding of lactate. But something that's also important, and the reason that this 2017 study was chosen is that we pretty much always associate lactate with exercise, but that might not actually be the case. And the work that Dr. Brooks and Dr. Inigo San Milan, great friend of the show, they've been looking at lactate's role in, in cancer, in carcinogenesis, in tumor migration, 
in angiogenesis and all of these different uh, factors that are relating ultimately to cancer metabolism within our body. I just kind of love the fact, I mean, this is, this is the brilliance of the man. He kind of hit a point in his career where I went, well, I solved bioenergetics. So now let's go cure cancer. Yep. <laughs> and he is putting out some absolutely great research. I mean, this is, this is absolute brilliance. But yes, lactate is highly involved in cancer. And we are not going to go into the weeds on this paper because it is a deep paper that covers a lot of terms, a lot of concepts. It has all the acronyms that make Trevor happy. I was very happy with this paper. I thoroughly enjoyed reading this. But it is important to point out, well, I'm not going to go into the, the particulars. I don't think Rob wants to go into the particulars either. As he's explaining this, they are pointing to a whole lot of research where when they use drugs that block lactate, that block lactate production, that block some of the important elements in this whole lactate transport, such as the, the MCT transporters, you actually can see improvements in cancer. Yeah, and so the initial link, what I'll say is that as brilliant as we've made out Dr. Brooks to be, the initial link between cancer and lactate actually happened with a researcher back in 1920s, 1923, if I remember 1923 correctly. was the introduction. Yes. So we are at the 100-year mark. We are. Wow, that's incredible. And that was from a researcher named Otto Warburg. And he ultimately, it was later coined the term the Warburg. It's hard to say this word, Warburg. Thank you. I'm glad I'm not the only one. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like a weird, like, war, war of your mouth, right? It's, it's too, I don't know, the Warburg effect. Thank you, Otto. Um, how about Dr. Otto's effect? How about that? Can I rename it? That sounds like a Bond villain. All right, fine. Dr. Otto's oh, effect. Oh, Mr. Bond. <laughs> Ultimately, Wait you see my lactate device. <laughs> hey, lactate is serious business. Yes, it is. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Ultimately, what we see is that if you look at the lactate going into blood vessels that feed cancer, it's relatively low. But for some unknown reason, especially in 1920s, there was a ton of lactate coming out of cancer cells, like 40 to 70 times the amount that should have been coming out. Yeah, 70 times is what he found. Yeah. Which is extraordinary. So we've talked about the importance of homeostasis in our body. When you are producing 70 times more lactate than normal, like every homeostatic alarm in the body is going full rev. Yeah. And at the time, they couldn't necessarily understand it. 1920s to even, I can't even imagine discovering this in the 1920s with you know, the ability and the laboratory techniques that people had. So we talked a lot about how we were just learning things in the 1980s, right? Right. But to be thinking about this in the 1920s is, is mind-blowing to me. And it was interesting some of the ways he did it. So my understanding was, and it's been a bit since I've read this, he would take cancer cells out of the body and put them in a glucose solution and then see what sort of, how much lactate they were producing. Did he taste the glucose solution and see if it tasted tangy, not sweet? Yeah, back then they did that sort of stuff. <laughs> they did do that sort there, of stuff. I'm a, not I, joking I forget about the name it. of it. There's a chemistry manual that's been around for hundreds of years. And for the longest time, when it had the descriptions of all the properties of each chemical, it included taste. 
And I want to know who was the poor research assistant who had to try dioxin. Yeah, I know. Is it just like death? You know, like <laughs> it tastes has, like has yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like uh, you know, can't taste due to death. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's horrible. But I wonder if that actually happened. Anyway, the the original thinking at the time before uh, Dr. Brooks and Dr. Sam Milan got their hands on it was that it was more about the glucose that the cancer cell was trying to metabolize and less about the lactate that was coming out the other end. And what they're proposing in this paper is that it has nothing to do with the glucose and everything to do with lactate and that the the cancer cells are purposefully, it's a little bit of an anthropomorphization of a, of a cell, but that they're purposely producing lactate because lactate is beneficial to cancer proliferation through carcinogenesis and, and other negative processes. Yeah, this is really important. We are 100 years out from the discovery of the Warburg effect and still have not landed on here is a definitive explanation for why the Warburg effect exists. And, and as Rob just pointed out, this is what they're proposing in this paper. Dr. Samalan and Dr. Brooks are saying, we think we understand and it's not what you thought it was. It's actually that the cancer cells want to produce lactate and they go into a lot of detail in the paper about how lactate, high lactate levels create the environment that cancer cells need to proliferate. Yeah. So if we kind of maybe let's just focus on the steps here and, and we'll, we'll figure out on the fly how much depth we want to go into for each one. But ultimately, the suggestion is that through some disrupted DNA, right? We talked about this in our skin care mm -hmm. episode, UV light uh, damages DNA, and then that can cause, um, you know, skin cancers, melanoma, so on and so forth. Well, that uh, disrupted DNA can occur anywhere within the body. And that that change in DNA ultimately creates a cell that's more glycolytic in nature. That's sort of right. the first step of that one particular cell. Well, this is really important. When you look at the mutations in cancer cells, a lot of them are related to the mitochondria. And you see a breakdown of mitochondrial function in cancer cells. So cancer cells have a harder time or are completely incapable of using oxygen, using fat, produce energy. Yeah. And it even starts at the beginning where the cancer cell and the mutations that occur increase actually the glucose transport into the cell as well. So not only is the mitochondria struggling to do things in an aerobic manner, the cell is being set up to work in a glycolytic manner by increasing its ability to pull glucose in. Right. Now, something they mention in the paper which I found interesting is why do cancer cells become reliant on glucose? And their explanation for this was because the body always provides a steady stream of glucose. And important thing to remember here when you're talking about cancer cells, the, one of the main issues with cancer is most cells in our body, think of them as selfless. They provide a function in the body and cells do that function, then at some point they actually have a programmed death. So cells are, are completely there for whatever's best for the body as a whole. Cancer cells, think of them as kind of selfish cells. They go, yeah, I don't want that. 
you're not going to program my death. I want to proliferate. I want to grow. Leave me alone. I'm going to do my own thing. And I don't care if this helps the body. And a lot of what they describe in this paper is how lactate drives a lot of these functions that allow this cancer cell to be very selfish, that actually draws all this glucose to the cancer cells, that prevents apoptosis, so cellular death, prevents all these things that you normally see in other cells so that the cancer cell can sit there and keep growing and, and be quite happy on its own, even though it's damaging the body. And they do point out something really interesting that it's, it's not really the tumor. When, when people die of cancer, it's not the tumor that kills you. It's all the damage that these cancer cells are doing to the body, demanding all this energy, demanding all this glucose, making all these demands for itself at the cost of the body. Yeah, Trevor, and it, it, what you're talking about now is the thread that they use to explain why we see this shift to a glycolytic energy production that, as you mentioned earlier, only produces relatively few ATP energy molecules in the single digits compared to the oxidative, the aerobic that produces, you know, in the, the 30s to 40s. And that is because, well, when the liver is acting like a liver, it's not acting to help itself, it's acting to help the rest of the body. But in the cancer cell, it doesn't care about efficient energy production. It makes no difference because it doesn't care about the rest yeah. of the body. It shifts the burden of energy production onto the host, right? The cancer is ultimately surviving at the expense of the tissues, not in support of the tissues around it. Yeah. So we're definitely going to talk about this more in future episodes. But I'm going to mention this now and I'm going to watch Rob's face to see how much he grimaces. But I'm not sure I agree with this. I'm not sure I agree that the reason cancer cells shift to relying on glucose is because there's a ready supply. Because our other primary fuel is fat, and there's a much more ready supply of fat in our body pretty much at all times. So I'm not sure I buy that. My personal feeling for the reason cancer cells become reliant on glucose. And like I said, we're actually going to talk about this in a future episode. We just talked about the cell cycle, that it, cells function to, to serve the whole body and cells go through these natural cycles. It starts with proliferation where cells grow. Then a cell goes into what's called cell cycle arrest and it can go back and forth between these, these two phases. Ultimately goes into apoptosis, which is cell death. This is what's called the cell cycle, and it's important for cells to go through all three of those stages. There's recent research showing that glucose levels direct which stage a cell is in. And when glucose is readily available, the cell is in a proliferation phase, which is what a cancer cell always wants to be in. So I actually, my thought on this is the reason cancer cells shift to relying on glucose and create that environment where it's demanding glucose from the body is because that keeps it in a perpetual proliferation phase and prevents it from ever going into apoptosis. Yeah, and I think that, that that particular theory is outside the discussion of this paper, but I do believe that it's ultimately in line with where they're going, right? Because if we begin, and, and I don't want to unpack it all now, but if we begin to think about the processes that occur that are driving that proliferation, then it also is paralleling the effects that lactate is having for the cancer cell, right? Where by upregulating lactate, 
we're down-regulating the immune activity within the mm -hmm. body, right? And so that immune activity isn't able to uh, go out. The natural killer cells, the T cells are not able to stop those individual cancer cells from traveling throughout the body and ultimately metastasizing, right? Creating cancer in more of a global sense within the body. So I think that we're, we're talking about things in parallel, but it's an interesting take on why this is happening from the very beginning. Alter Exploration is a new custom cycling tour company created by me, Fast Talk Labs co-founder, Chris Case. Alter Exploration crafts challenging, transformative cycling journeys in some of the world's most stunning destinations. Alter's trips aren't so much a vacation as an exploration of the destination and of yourself. At the end of every day, be preoccupied as much by the transformative experience as by the satisfaction of exhaustion. Reach a greater understanding of your physical and mental capabilities while simultaneously experiencing a jaw-dropping landscape. Life altered. Learn more about my favorite adventure destinations and start dreaming at alterexploration.com. Well, so Rob, you said before we dived into this paper that I am not allowed to talk about HIF-1 or P53. I didn't say you weren't allowed to. I just said we don't want to put people to sleep. They've had their coffee. I'm the only one here who hasn't had their coffee. Can I point out something in this paper, actually? <laughs> I really appreciated that there was a little table of acronyms, right? Like yes. HIF, right? You know, because oftentimes what happens in papers is that the first time a term is used, it's spelled out. And then in parentheses, it's the acronym. And from hence after in the paper, it's only the acronym. And they never ever mention what the original uh, terminology was. But only about 50% of the acronyms were in that summary. Uh, and so I had a great reference for 50% of them. And I had to actually read the paper to find the other 50%. So can I just embarrassingly admit to you that even though I had read that HIF stands for hypoxia inducible factor, at some point I switched to calling it high altitude inducible factor. <laughs> well, and I same, called same. it that for two years, I think, without even being aware I had accidentally done that. Yeah, same, same, but different. Yep. But actually, I like the high altitude inducible factor because it makes it clear this is caused by altitude, lack of oxygen. Decreased pressure, Trevor, not lack. Concentration's the same, bro. It's the amount of pressure pushing it across the membrane. Right. Oh, God, calling, that's another episode. You're calling me the nerd. <laughs> <laughs> so without diving into all these things, and anybody who is interested in the, the biochemistry, interested in the physiology, this is a great paper to read because the, and it's another one of those papers that has what, 200 references. I'm going down in the paper. It's not even loading. There's so many references I know, here. Keep, yeah. keep scrolling. 225 references. This is a, a massive paper that is very insightful on a lot of what's going on in cancer cells. But Rob, what else do we want to share here except just making that point that lactate is really important to the, the pathogenesis of cancer. Yeah, I kind of, I want to just sum up the steps that this goes through so that if people have any takeaway, they can just kind of remember these, these quick things here. So the very beginning of this is increasing glucose uptake within the cell. When that occurs, then we have this great upregulation of glycolytic enzymes, our ability to use that glucose for energy. 
and Trevor, as you pointed out, a decrease in our mitochondrial activity, right? And so that cell is becoming very, quote unquote, anaerobic, right? And they liken it to what happens in yeast and bacteria for their mm -hmm. energy production, right? Typically, our energy production differs. So after that decreased mitochondrial respiration, that's when we really see this greatly increased lactate production coming out of the cell. And as we pointed out in our first two papers about exercise, we typically would use mitochondria to oxidize that lactate into fuel. But we're down-regulating our mitochondria, and so we're losing that ability to use the lactate as fuel, which ultimately means we got more lactate floating around. And because we have more lactate floating around, now we're seeing changes in our immune system and other downstream effects because lactate can also act like a hormone. Uh, Dr. Samalon loves to call it a lacthormone, I believe, in his Basque accent that I can't possibly mm -hmm. do. And that sets up an environment that allows the lactate cells to proliferate and travel within our body. And ultimately, that's a big part of why lactate is important. So my question, Trevor, mm -hmm. I'm not willing to really say this, but can we learn something from this about lactate, about cancer, about metabolism? Are you willing to make any statements? I am if you want me to make them, and this is where I'm putting on my nutritionist hat, and the statement that I'm going to make, which I, I get the sense you kind of want, this is where you're pushing me. Well, I want it to be said, but I don't want to be the person to say it. So I'm going to say it, but understand, with the explanation we just gave, this isn't going to fully make sense. There's a lot more to this, and it is something we might dive into later on. But basically, what you just heard is cancer cells are giant glucose consumers. The biggest. Actually, for what it's worth, when we're looking for cancer within the body, the scan that they use detects glucose metabolism. That's actually that's what a PET scan yep. does. It's how you find the cancer in the body. What we haven't gone into at all, that like I said, we might cover another time, but I've read plenty of research on this, is excess glucose supply can potentially lead to this mechanism. So the argument that I'm going to make, my take home here is that if you are at risk of cancer or you have been diagnosed with cancer, you need to be very careful about the simple sugars and the carbohydrates you are consuming. And I am not a doctor, so I have to be careful about what I say, but I would say personally, if I was ever diagnosed with cancer, well, I am not a supporter of the keto diet, I would probably go keto for many months. You know, at least on the surface, it seems like it might have an effect. Now, again, I don't want to be the person that says that because I don't fully understand this enough. And Maybe what we should do is look for researchers. And if anybody is aware of researchers on the other side of this, I'd love to have that well-rounded conversation mm -hmm. about, because, hey, there could be downsides, you know, to, to reducing your carbohydrate intake, right? And maybe that's appropriate for more of a treatment sort of phase. I, I don't know. I, I don't even want to go there. But I, I think that it's an interesting conversation and in an area that more research really needs to be done and I know that Dr. San Milan has been involved in some research that's looking at how do you suppress this lactate production 
And at this point, I believe they're looking at what does that do to cancer cells in the laboratory in a Petri dish? We're not at human trials, but a new way of looking at cancer treatment that ultimately revolves around this Warburg effect. I said it correctly that time and lactate's role in the metabolism. And look, I agree. It'd be great to get a researcher in on this. I've actually been doing a lot of research myself out of interest on this. The, the short story is, unfortunately, my sister-in-law's father is dying of cancer. I'm also a, a physiology geek. And so she asked me if I could see if there was anything. So I've been researching into this. And this is why I would love to do a few more episodes on this because there is some really fascinating, really exciting stuff out there. But if people are interested in this, I'm just going to give the names of a couple studies that dive into this that would be really good reads. One is Revisiting the Warburg Effect, Diet-Based Strategies for Cancer Prevention. That's a 2020 study, and it goes into the effects of a ketogenic diet. If you're really interested in that, cutting sugar and does it help or does it not help? And again, this is all very new. So this Mm -hmm. study is 2022, and they even say, promising, a lot more research needs to be done. And nothing is a panacea, right? Let's be honest about that. But this study is called, Could Ketogenic Diets Starve Cancer? Emerging Evidence. Couple more, effects of obesity and calorie restriction on cancer development. So there's also evidence, again, because it puts you into that ketogenic state is the theory here. There's a 2023 study showing that doing some intermittent fasting seems to have some benefits. Other really interesting things I've I've seen on this, and, and part of the reason I've been diving even further into this research is there are common mechanisms. So I've been diagnosed with uh, atrial fibrillation. And here's a, a title that you're kind of going to go, what? The Warburg effect a new insight into atrial fibrillation. Mm-hmm. And they're showing that actually the Warburg effect happens in atrial fibrillation as well. Meaning cardiac cells are producing more lactate than they should? Or I haven't read the paper. I'm not familiar with this at all. They are producing more than they should. Hmm. You mentioned HIF-1. Mm-hmm. HIF-1 is highly involved in, um, in atrial fibrillation. Another one which they only touch on in, in Dr. Brooks's paper but I think is very important to this whole mechanism is something called AMPK. Mm-hmm. AMPK is basically the glucose sensor. It senses the level of glucose in, in your bloodstream and then sets off different reactions in, in your body depending on whether the glucose is elevated or, or, or low. And that's being shown to, to relate to atrial fibrillation. So again, I was talking about the cell cycle and what you are seeing is a breakdown of the cell cycle in atrial fibrillation. There's a lot of research on that. And take it even a step further, I could read off a bunch of studies to you right now about neurodegeneration, where you're seeing a similar mechanism there as well. well there you go. So it's uh, pretty exciting stuff. I think what you're, what you're seeing from this Dr. Brooks paper and all these other studies I mentioned is, is almost kind of a, a revolution in how we're looking at these chronic diseases and realizing that there are common mechanisms in all of them. Yeah, and just the, you know, the interconnectedness within the body, exercise and the molecules, the processes associated with exercise are not necessarily just about exercise. They're about what happens to our body at rest in our daily life. And Dr. Sam Milan talks a lot about how increasing endurance training, how improving your mitochondrial function 
Well, that allows a metabolic flexibility that allows you to use carbohydrates or fat as fuel. And uh, not doing that, not having that metabolic flexibility means that you're just stuck utilizing carbohydrate all the time. And that can lead to a whole host of chronic diseases as well. And that's why one of the reasons that we see improvements in, in quality of life and in wellness through exercise. So I love that we started today's episode with these deep dives into exercise and exercise physiology, but that ultimately we're rounding it out with this conversation about health and longevity and disease process using the same terms, the same molecules, the same transporters and tying it all together. Yep. And so the last message I will give here, because you touched on metabolic flexibility, and I think you've touched on one of the most important things. And this is where I'm getting outside of what we were talking about in this episode and talking about all the research that, that I've been currently going through. And that metabolic flexibility that's sometimes relying on, on carbohydrates, sometimes relying on, on fat, is actually essential for health. Because we talked about the cell cycle, that cell needs to go through proliferation. It needs to go through cell cycle arrest. And the reason cell cycle arrest is so important is because that's when your body or cells repair DNA. And they also need to go through apoptosis. What they're showing is that metabolic flexibility is essential to go through all those cycles. Mm -hmm. If you are in a constant state of high glucose, you're going to be in a constant state of cellular proliferation. And that's not healthy for you. And that leads to things like cancer. Alternatively, you have a lot of people saying, oh, we need to be keto all the time. Keto is really healthy for us. Well, very low glucose levels drive towards apoptosis. And that's actually, and the, I could name you a bunch of more studies that have been showing that actually speeds up aging. Mm-hmm. So there isn't, I haven't seen a study that says, yes, somebody on a long-term ketogenic diet ages faster, but there's plenty of evidence pointing in that direction. So the message here is, you need to be metabolically flexible. You need to sometimes have lower glucose levels, sometimes have higher glucose levels, and that's going to keep your cells healthy and have them going through all those cycles. And the last thing I'll mention, I just read a study a couple of weeks ago that was a wow study for me. And if you're interested in what we we're just talking about, read this one. It's a 2022 study that explains all this. And it's called Coordination of the AMPK, AKT, mTOR and p53 pathways under glucose starvation wow and i went nerdy (laughs) i apologize my eyes glazed over i apologize to everybody else you know trevor yeah i think that we're ending on a great point here as with everything even endurance training you can't just have one process occurring within the body we know that that's not healthy We talk a lot about how the majority of your training needs to be at relatively low intensities, but we never talk about how it should only be at low intensities. And there has to be a mix of high and low intensity. There has to be a mix of carbohydrate and fat. There has to be a mix of pushing forward and pulling back. Right. And and that is that variety is ultimately the spice of life, right? It makes us happy in our everyday life. Uh, It makes our bodies healthy in their metabolic life. And uh, we need to be training our bodies to be able to do that. Fantastic. Great message to end it on. If anybody's still with us and not asleep. (laughs) This was a riveting conversation and people can't wait for more. I hope so. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcast. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. 
Tweet at us at Fast Talk Labs or join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com. For Trevor Connor, I'm Rob Pickles. Thanks for listening. <laughs>